Christina Raya, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking It, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work to get seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are launching our craft mini-series, where we talk to folks from creative disciplines not as frequently highlighted. This series is an invitation to our guests to get extremely nerdy about their specialties and their process. First up, we've got Jenny Powell with us, a creative producer and expert in interactive storytelling. Before we dive in, though, really quickly, we wanted to plug our new free monthly newsletter, which you can sign up for at the bottom of breakingoutpod.com get on in that. It's it's a good time once a month. But uh, without further ado, let's get nerdy. Welcome, Jenny. Hey, guys. Good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> We're delighted to have you. So could you uh, introduce yourself, tell the people who you are and what you make? Sure. My name is Jenny Powell. As you mentioned, I am a creative producer. I'm sure we'll talk all about what that means. Um, Also, specifically, a type of storytelling that I work in a lot is what is called transmedia storytelling. So this is creating like a story world as opposed to a single story and utilizing other platforms and mediums in order to build that storytelling world. I've been doing it for, I mean... If we get really nerdy, because I'm also a teacher, so I I teach this so I can get really into the minutia, but um, please do. Basically, it's a type of storytelling that has been around forever, but particularly right now, it's very valuable in the industry because of franchising, which if you aren't familiar with the term transmedia, you may clue into franchising because, you know, in our industry, especially at the executive level, franchising equals dollar signs because you're creating not just one piece of content, but, you know, you could have a story world that has comic books and um, movies and television and podcasts and video games and each and and for it to specifically be termed transmedia, each of those different storytelling platforms tells a different part of the story world. So it's not simply adaptation. That's a completely different craft. It can, the lines can get blurred. We can get into that if you want. But um, yeah, so I started out in the industry. I actually, my background, I do not have a film degree of any kind. I have a psychology degree, which realizing now was a very great way to go for being a producer. And we can get into that Mm -hmm. as well. Um, (laughs) So I started after I finished uh, my studies in psychology at San Diego State University. I moved to Los Angeles after I, it's a long story, but I was getting a master's. I did not finish it, came to LA because there was, I did a lot of theater and performing art growing up. And I kind of like missed that. And I was like, hey, I want to actually give LA a shot. So I moved out to LA. I started doing a lot of extra work because, and working on student films. Uh, Again, I didn't go to school, but I hooked up with people who were in film school to kind of just volunteer. And so I kind of- Vicarious film school. Yeah, I kind of went about my, my education in a unique way. Started in reality television, did that for many years. And during that time, uh, YouTube was just kind of coming onto the scene. And my particular role as a, 
I was what was called a supervising producer in reality TV. And what that meant was I would be positioned at the office. I worked on shows that I worked on shows like Deadliest Catch. So shows that were like they shot out where they were and then shipped the footage to us as a supervising producer. I would go through it and work with the loggers and the editors in house to build the story from like thousands of hours of tapes which was a lot, but you know, there, like a lot of things in the industry, it was a lot of hurry up and wait. So if we were between things and we we're waiting for things to come in, I would watch YouTube videos because they were quick and they were short and I could get through a couple. And then as soon as they needed me, I could just turn it off and sure. got really kind of fascinated by the whole, we call them influencers now, but back in the day they were YouTubers or vloggers. Mm-hmm. And was very fascinated with how these individuals were, one, able to like reach out to a large audience because of the power of the internet and also amass this huge amount of audience based on their personal stories. And I was very interested to see if, well, is anyone thinking about using this format for storytelling in any way? And I thought, found that very fascinating. And I discovered a project called Lonely Girl 15. For those not in the know, uh, Lonely for, I'm going to spoil the whole thing for you. So spoiler alert. I mean, it's been, it's it's like a 20 year I know, I was like, at this point, I think I'm past the like, oh, sorry, I'm spoiling this for you. But basically, Lonely Girl 15 was a vlogger. Her name was Brie. She was a 16 year old girl. And she started sharing stories about her life. But as she started sharing more, people started to have concerns because she was sharing things like, oh, well, I'm homeschooled. And people are like, oh, why are you homeschooled? Like, you seem like a, of course, I'm paraphrasing, you know, this is all happening through messages and things of that nature. But as she started Mm -hmm. sharing more about herself, she's like, well, I used to go to public school, but I was being bullied. So my parents pulled me out. Oh, and by the way, I'm adopted. And it's like, wow, there's a lot going on with this girl. And she's like, yeah, you know, I'm in this religion and people don't understand it. And they think it's a cult. It's not a cult, but I was picked to be at a special ceremony for 16 year old. And people are like, wait, what the heck is going on? (laughs) And it kind of stirred up this conversation about safety and the internet. Because at this point in time, people thought this was a real person. Spoiler alert, we'll get to that. (laughs) And people were like, well, if she really is in some kind of danger, how would you go about, like, who do you you contact? Mm -hmm. Do you tell YouTube? Do you no one knew where she lived. She didn't even say what city she was in. She was very private, which was all part of the mystique. So then people started, the conversation kind of went through like, well, doesn't all this feel a little artificial? So then the question became, is this real? Or is very war of the world for the modern age? Exactly. (laughs) Like, And there were kind of these two factions that emerged, the people who really believed this was a real girl. And it's like, no, there's no way I would connect this way if she wasn't a real person. No actress is that good. I was like, well, I don't know. (laughs) And then another group who was like, this is fake. Um, Even that camp was kind of like, there was a group of people who were like, this is fake and this is dangerous. And then there was a group who were like, oh my God, this is like Blair Witch or like, this Mm -hmm. is genius. 
I fell into that camp and I was like, I think this is scripted and I want to know who's doing it because this is what I want to do. These, like, it was so out of the box and so different. Like I loved Blair Witch. Uh, It scared the crap out of me because (laughs) they did a very fine job, but yes. So finally it was revealed. Here we go. Uh, It was scripted that the entire thing was they hired an actress Ironically, she was a film school or acting school student who had just graduated from the New York Film Academy, which is now where I work. (laughs) Uh, So it's just funny how everything came full circle. But I eventually, because of the way the show was formatted, it allowed for a lot of audience interaction. So once it was revealed, it was a scripted show. People were there was some people were mad and some people were like, that was you should not have done that. Like the, the, there's safety issues because who do you call when a girl on the internet says she's in a cult and you want to help her? But then enough people right. were so engaged with the story that they wanted it to continue. So it continued as a scripted web series. It is from a historical perspective, Lonely Girl 15 is considered the first scripted web series. Because of my involvement, I became known in the fan community as someone who was really passionate about it and started making my own fan videos. I kind of took a different route than most people. Most people were creating characters in the story world. I actually created a parody series, which I called Lonely Jew 15. And it was Anne Frank as a video vlogger. And it is (laughs) time travel and trying to kill Hitler. And it was a whole thing. It was only meant to be a single sketch that I actually shot for something different. But my friends asked me to put it online and the fans of the show actually really loved it. And I was like, this is, I'm, this is a tightrope. <laughs> like this, mm-hmm. you know, but I actually ended up working on that project for a year because people thought it was fun and we kept doing it. And I actually ended up getting hired on Lonely Girl as a production assistant. And at one point in time was doing both at the same time. (laughs) So that's kind of where I got my start. So I, once they hired me on Lonely Girl, I quit my job in reality television, which was a full-time job with benefits to start over as a PA on a web series, which a lot of people were like, what even is that? (laughs) Uh, My parents thought I would be homeless on the streets. They were very concerned. Uh, (laughs) I mean, my mom just got on Facebook like less than a year ago. So for a long time, she's like, well, I don't know what you do. I know you live in LA. Uh, and I was like, it's okay. It's okay. She's, she's seen my work now, but at first she was like, I don't know what you are doing. So I worked on Lonely Girl until it ended and then went on to work with Felicia Day on the Guild, which is another very popular web very series. Very classic. Yeah, yeah. And she was my mentor and worked with her for many years and then went on to start producing my own projects. And I'm probably most known for the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, which is a web series, but it also had transmedia elements. And the Lizzie Bennett Diaries ended up winning an Emmy Award for Best Interactive Series. And this was a newer There was only one project who had gotten it before us. It was a brand new television academy has been very open to adding digital projects and counting it as television. And so that was that was a crazy opportunity. I never even knew I had access to. Well, that was the the first YouTube distributed series to win an Emmy. Wasn't that? 
No, right? there was one I'm... before it called Dirty Work. Uh, but actually, uh, was that also right. YouTube? It was distributed? not on YouTube. Yeah, you're correct. That's Aha. I think the that's the distinction. You're Aha. right. You're right. Yeah, I know my web series history too, Jenny. I know. I was, I was thinking <laughs> of it because Jay Bushman worked on Dirty Work, and he also worked on Lizzie oh, sure. yeah. And so I'm like, no, no, no. I can't take the credit for being the first. It was really Jay was the first transmedia producer for mm-hmm. internet-based content. But you're correct. Sure. It was not distributed through YouTube. Mm-hmm. I think that brings us up to speed. Sure. For the last uh, seven years, I have also been teaching transmedia mm-hmm. storytelling as well as producing at the New York Film Academy and just, uh, oh, it's almost been, it's almost been a year, but I'm now the chair of the producing department at that school. So getting to mix like what I love doing with teaching has just been a real joy. So that's amazing. That was a very long introduction, but. You know, but it's <laughs> I think it's interesting and yeah, you, totally. you've been a part of so much history. Yeah. Uh, so really quickly from just like a definitions point of view, so we can have this conversation. Yeah. Uh, how do you define creative producer? How does that distinguish itself from other forms of producing? What do you wish people knew about creative producing? Sure. Creative producing. The, the biggest thing I want people to know, <laughs> do not hire me and ask me to get your money for you. I'm not that type of producer. <laughs> That's kind of the easiest way to sum it up. Um, A creative producer, and it's not that creative producers don't help with financing. Um, That's definitely not the case. But in general, you're going to bring on a creative producer when you have the budget set and you're ready to start putting things together. Because the creative producer works very closely with the writer and the director. Our job is to do all the technical. Well, since you said I could curse, I'm going to say the technical bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> and, and a lot of the paperwork and those kinds of things so that the director and the and the writers and the other creatives can focus on the vision and working directly with the actors and generally the creative producer helps hire everyone um, so a lot of times a creative producer is on first and then helps get the director usually the writers already at least you know, attached. There's, a, there's a project that has been sold. So sure. Yeah. So the, the creative producer is, is, and is usually the one that's going to go into the room and try to get things greenlit and things of that nature. But in general, things like distribution and financing, they usually work with those that, that usually falls to a, an executive producer or line producers, for instance, who are more day-to-day on the set like keeping things running in the day-to-day creative producers are kind of outside of those realms. But a lot of times creative producers and the financing do tie together. I'm usually in the way I produce, I'm usually the one you come to when you have the budget and I make your budget work, whatever that Mm -hmm. level is. Um, My specialty is working within uh, constraints So having worked Mm -hmm. on the internet for so long and doing web content, I'm very, I can be very flexible. I like to make a little look like a lot. Not that I wouldn't be very happy if you brought me large budgets. I can do that (laughs) as well. (laughs) No, that's, yeah, that's certainly a skill that not everyone has. Um, So let's go back to Lonely Girl for a second, because it was the first narrative web series and it is also highly interactive because not every web series is interactive. Some of them just use YouTube as a distributor. 
totally fair, totally valid. Mm-hmm. That's not really what we're talking about today. So I'm curious, since you were kind of there on the ground floor, first as a fan, then as a PA, and I know you've continued to work with folks from that project mm-hmm. since then, what were things that you learned while on that first project about the potential of the digital distribution space, of the potential of including the audience in the content? Like, what, what were some of your first learnings in telling stories this way? Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it's interesting I learned the most before I worked on the show at, at hmm. being in a position of a fan and interacting with this content and lonely girl while being the first web series that integrated these, these interactive elements, things of this nature had existed prior to that. There's uh, a very specific form of entertainment called alternate reality games which did grow a lot out of the beginnings of the internet because it often it's non-linear storytelling. It's a lot of, you know, uncovering of clues, which leads you to websites and code breaking. And I had already had a background in some of those things that I really enjoyed. And Lonely Girl just kind of, because their biggest inspirations, and I I know this because I've worked with the creators for so long now, I have... (laughs) huge backgrounds, but they were saying like, obviously Blair Witch was an inspiration. They bring that up a lot, but they also talk about alternate reality games such as Why So Serious, which was an alternate reality game built around the Dark Knight, the original Dark, the first one, which again are integrating these puzzle elements and things of that nature. And Lonely Girl really wanted to kind of marry those two, because if you were there in the beginning, it kind of got looser as time went on, but Lonely Girl 15 had a lot of alternate reality games, both created directly by the creators and fan-made ones. Oh, wow. Because there was so much wow. mystery around what was going on with Lonely Girl that a lot, and, and because of the way it welcomed audience participation, there were a lot of people that jumped in and kind of we call it game jacking, actually. Like you're, you're actually not supposed to jump in and try to throw your own alternate reality game on top of something that already exists if you haven't gotten permission. But like sure. it was so... I imagine that would be confusing yeah, for a viewer. It, it was so Wild Wild West then that it was just like... At one point in time, there were like three or four different alternate reality games that kind of grew out of Lonely Girl, which there's still hmm. debate on who started them. And some of them, which are like so mysterious that people still get together and talk about them, but they're like puzzles that have never been solved. Hmm. It's like, oh my hmm. goodness. So all that entire, for me, the fascinating part of it is the growth of community because I've always been a type of person that enjoys, it's remarkable. I actually am an introvert and it takes a lot to draw me into a community. But once I do, I'm like diehard, like Sure. And really Lonely Girl tapped into something that whether it was people felt attached to Brie herself and felt this need to protect her. I don't know what the magic combination was, but there was something about it that brought people together. And Lonely Girl actually inspired a lot of the big vloggers who are still vlogging today, like Philip DeFranco cites Lonely Girl 15, Hank and John Green. I remember meeting mm-hmm. Hank and John Green in the YouTube community or in the Lonely Girl community before they started vlogging. Oh, wow. And they actually pitched the idea of their original web series 
Brotherhood 2.0 mm-hmm. within the Lonely Girl community. And everyone was like, yeah. In fact, John Green was so convinced that Brie was real. Like he was the last holdout. <laughs> he like fought people. He, he was, was like, a truth. No, she has to be real. People, he fought so much that people were like, oh, you, they hired you. You're, they hired you to say this. He's like, no, no, I believe in Brie. It was, it was pretty crazy. Cause yeah, it got to the point where it was like, can we trust you? Are you with the creators or are you doing this on your own? It was a whole, I don't know. It was this element of mystery and the puzzle elements. It just was all really fascinating. And I learned a lot doing it and then I mean that's the real reason I became a valuable asset for when the creators wanted to bring me over because I had a background in film I was located in Los Angeles which they were and I knew the story world so it made a lot of sense to bring someone over in that capacity so I wasn't the only one there were other LA-based Lonely Girl fans who in different capacities also got brought into the project. Some of them as, as characters, some of them as me, because I learned pretty quickly that I'm not an in front of the camera person. My parody series was pretty much as far as I was willing to go. <laughs> so yeah, so it was, it was kind of fascinating because there was some self-awareness on my part that the actions I was taking in the fan community, I wanted to get their attention. Sure. Like when they asked me to be on the show, I was like, yeah, because that was kind of what I wanted to do. It was like mm-hmm. the weirdest job getting experience. Sure. It's very interactive cover letter style stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question just about, because I, I missed this whole window of sure. Lonely Girl 15. What was yeah, the timeline? No. How long was it going on Oof. before people realized that it wasn't real, like officially? So it launched in, I want to say July. I mean, I could look it up, but it launched in 2006 okay. and YouTube launched in 2005. Yeah, I was going to say it was, it was within really a year. Early. Right now. Okay. It was really early on. Wow. It was, I believe, about six months before it was finally like, okay, we can't like continue this. So there's a lot of stories around why they had to reveal it. And the one that I have heard from them, so it's, I'm taking this as fact, sure. is as that canon as it can someone, be. someone hacked Bree's Gmail account, not even her, not even her YouTube account. They got into her Gmail account and figured out where the emails were being sent from via IP address. I'm not a hacker. I do not. I know these are tools available. Sure. And because the emails were being emailed by one of the creators from CAA, which is mm-hmm. a California talent agency, because right. they they were interning there. I think they were interning there or something. They, they had a low level position there. And one of the things they did on their off time was to respond because they were the person that played Brie. I think, right. Okay. And so this individual reached out and said, hey, uh, I have pretty strong evidence that I don't think a young girl lives inside of a talent agency. That (laughs) seems wrong. You should, the story, the story is that like they were given like a time frame of like, if you don't come out, we're gonna reveal this. I find that slightly suspect because I don't know hackers that are that kind, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was a fan of the show or whatever, but 
Point being, they finally did, um, they held a press conference and revealed the actress that played Brie. Her name is Jessica Lee Rose. (laughs) And from there, it was like, the internet exploded because, (laughs) yeah, a ton of people, again, like there was this mixed reaction of angry people who were like, hey, we believed this person was real. You have taken advantage of us. But then there were enough more people who were like, wait a minute. You can tell stories this way. Mm-hmm. And enough people who were with it originally who were like, we like the story, please keep doing it. Sure. That it was able to continue. And the main Lonely Girl 15 show ran uh, three years. Wow, okay. It was pretty long running. And then they made the choice to like kind of end the main Lonely Girl 15. And they ended up doing another series called Lonely Girl 15, The Resistance, which was shot less video vloggy and more of like produced content. Because originally, Miles, who created the, who did, came up with the original idea, his plan was always that the web series part of this was just marketing so that he could sell it as a feature film. Got it. So proof of concept. Yes. But the web series went so well that they just stayed predominantly in that format because that was the format now that the audience was used to. Sure. And they they actually did license Lonely Grove 15 as a concept to other countries. So there was Cape Modern, which was the British version. There was a Polish version. I think they that Nicola, did come out. with like a one. Nicola with a one um and i it was being developed in a couple other places as well yeah no it was it was a huge thing yeah and it it was different no one had tried to do that before so it was kind of like they were kind of laying the groundwork for all these things that came after it sure so as a fan then kind of participating in like arg Mm -hmm. style stuff and Mm -hmm. transmedia stuff what like from your perspective as a consumer really works and alternatively doesn't work about including interactive elements? Like what are things that you're like, that's just, I've never seen it be successful. It's more frustrating than not. Or alternatively, what are things that are like, people are rabid for this, do this thing if you want to engage people. For me having, and this is in all projects that I've worked in that have these interactive elements, the real key to success is in the casting. Okay. You have to have a character that people connect with. And that what is what brings people in. And I actually did play an alternate reality game, which oddly enough, originally was connected to Lonely Girl, but it was independent. And then it went off on its own called Madison Atkins. And so the first part of the game was this girl named Madison Atkins started receiving messages via carrier pigeon. <laughs> and so she went on the internet and, and she, she tapped in. It was so meta. She tapped into the lonely girl community because she was like, I'm not part of this thing, but something's happening to me. That's weird. And it seems like you kind of, pe- you, you people would understand it. Mm-hmm. And so they were very smart about tying into that audience, but then bringing it over to this separate thing. And Madison Atkins herself was like this amazing character. We all fell in love with her. We were, I, I talk about these people like they're real. Mm-hmm. It gets a little confusing, but again, I'm nerding out right now. So, yes. so yeah, so this whole thing was, it was on a time clock. We had, I think it was 60 days or 30 days. It was a quick timeline. So 
it was it there was a ticking time clock element to it that's another thing that helps with these kinds of storylines is to set parameters barriers yeah. so that you like know where you're going so it's like that helps as well so this was like she got this strange message via a pigeon and it was saying that like in this amount of days that she has this amount of days to figure it out or something's gonna happen okay so we were all like all in we were all in mm-hmm. we're trying to help this girl got really attached to her she had a friend who was also and like we were trying to hook the two of them up like you know those normal fandom things that you do but we were kind of losing track of the time <laughs> and we're like oh right there's this other thing we're supposed to be doing right and it's going to be another spoiler but again this is not one of those things that I think anyone's going to be like what we failed we we did we did not and and it led to both characters being killed oh wow and it was like oh (laughs) like everyone was like oh my god this sucks then the creator of this decided like Sorry about that. <laughs> Let's give you another. A, not, okay, it, this is, there was like season two, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, blah, 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 like here we go, and then he introduced this new character, and she was getting the same kinds of messages. She was very unlikable. Mm. <laughs> she was not like Madison at all. In fact, she was like, there were oftentimes she would rage quit when we were talking to her because she's like, I don't believe you guys, and it actually became exhausting because mm-hmm. the only re- and the only reason any of us continued it is because we didn't want what happened to Madison to happen to her. Right. But she wasn't like her. It was like, it was actually kind of fascinating as far as games go, yeah. except that after a while, because she was so unlikable, most of the players dropped off because they were like, look, I really liked Madison, but like, screw this girl. <laughs> like, and then it reached a point where it just kind of fizzled out and the story kind of stopped. So what are you doing? Like, is it like they'll send you a series of garbled letters and you find a code? Like what, what are like the literal games you're playing there's, that you ran out of time for? Yeah, there's so many options, right? So what is very common in alternate reality games is it's usually a combination of online interaction, very complicated puzzles, and then these things called drops, which is a physical, you go to a physical place and pick something up. And that seems to be the sweet spot because to really do a successful one type of these interactive games to have a large audience, you want to have satisfying things for the online players to do. And then some people loved like, oh, I get to get that physical mm-hmm. kind of thing. bringing geocaching into the web series. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of a mixing of those things. And that's what Madison Atkins was like. And, and again, like the season two, like the second round, it had all that, but again, she was so unlikable and she was kind of the glue that should have kept us together we some people just got we're just too exhausted to, like emotionally exhausted they're just like mm-hmm. i don't actually care if you die not at this point at this point and what's interesting is after all of that the creator of madison atkins actually decided i'm gonna start all over again and bring madison back and we'll hmm. act as if what happened before did not happen i'm just gonna give you another shot at it 
and he restarted the game. I've wow. never seen a creator do that. By the time he did that, though, I, I didn't participate in second Madison Atkins because I was just like, I, by the time by that time I was working on the guild and there was a lot going on, but I know people who played it and they were successful the second time. Okay. So it was this weird, like, she was dead and then they erased it. And now she's alive <laughs> and everything's good. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating. I mean, it is alternate reality. I guess yeah. you can. Correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sleep yeah. Through. Roughly yeah. how many people were playing the first time around? I would say original Madison Atkins probably had a good couple hundred players. Huh, very cool. And then it kind of, after Madison died, there was like, I mean, I know people who were just like, fuck this. I'm done. I'm never playing a game like this again. Like how, de- like people get really, and that's the alternate reality part of the ARG is you are you playing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, although I know people that sometimes take on a persona because that feels safer to them, sure. which is fine. That's an option. But like for me, for instance, I never, it, it, this is true for all of my internet history. I've never used a pseudonym. I've never created, I mean, I play tabletop role playing, playing games. That's t- to me a whole different mm-hmm. experience. But when I play these types of games, I don't, find the need to hide my identity. But again, I do have, I, I don't do things like this is where I live. This is my address. This right. is my phone number. But like, I've never felt the need to hide behind a persona. And that's just a choice I'm, I made. So, I mean, I remember where I was sitting, where I watched that video. Like for us fans of that group, like those were like formative things for us. And I didn't know any other type of entertainment that I had participated in that felt that way. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what fascinated about me and why I wanted to create those experiences. So I'm curious uh, from your perspective as a teacher, like the conversations we're yeah. having right now are all like, these are shows that are 15, 20 years old. You know, we're, we're yeah. talking about the history of interactive media and ARDs, mm-hmm. and obviously they still exist. But I'm curious from a teaching perspective, when you're teaching these sorts of like craft elements, how to make transmedia, like what are you telling students in the year 2022? What has changed in the industry and how you recommend it as a artistic form? Right. Well, there's a lot more tools now. There's a lot more platforms to participate in. So when I teach either a web series or I tend to call it alternative media, which is kind of for me the umbrella term for web series, podcasts, immersive experiences. So anything that falls out of traditional, and I'm putting air quotes, film and television. So traditionally, most film schools I mean, a lot of them are called film schools, but -hmm. they tend to stick to film and television. My point being with all these new formats at our, that are accessible. And that's the other thing, the accessibility of these formats. You can go make a web series tomorrow. You don't have to pitch it, spend years trying to pitch it to executives, to a studio. And then once you get it, like, like television shows, then you have to, it's a writer's room. It's a blah, blah, blah. like, it takes years and years to, 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 to do those projects, but things like podcasts, web series, um, there are tools available to you right now where you can start telling your stories in whatever form you want that to take. So I really take the point of view of, I am empowering these students. 
that it's like, look, if your ultimate dream is to be a television writer, I am not going to stop you, but it will take like, just let's be serious. It takes years and there's nothing stopping anyone from expressing themselves creatively and potentially using those projects to help you get where you want to get. So those are really the tactics that I take that it's like, yes, we start with Lonely Girl. We talk about the guild. We talk about these formative projects, but then we look at what's going on right now. Like TikTok. I just added a TikTok lecture. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily my audience, but there are some innovative things happening on TikTok that these, and these kids could think of new things that I, that, that no one's thought of. I mean, when we did the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, the idea of taking a novel and adapting it to YouTube didn't exist until we created it. Because I did a lot of research before we started Lizzie Bennett Diaries, because the core idea was, has anyone taken a novel, a classic novel, in public domain, by the way, because (laughs) we didn't have the budget to get something not public domain, but like anyone could have done that. We just somehow got to it first. And I was actually surprised because I was like, somebody's done that. There's no way no, nobody. And, I, and I'd seen little like parody videos of people mm-hmm. kind of like, but nothing like what we did with Lizzie Bennett Diaries to the extent that we did. And then now that's just considered the literary web series. It's, it's a genre now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the LIW's literary mm-hmm. inspired web series. Yes, exactly. And nothing is stopping anyone from being the first to do that in like TikTok or whatever comes next, Mm -hmm. you know? Sure. (laughs) Because there's going to be more coming. (laughs) No, definitely. But I'm curious how then you also sort of establish and encourage students to experiment with the sort of like world building aspects Mm -hmm. of like transmedia. Because I know when I was teaching, and you and I have had this conversation before, but when I was teaching, I always make sure that I have a transmedia lecture and I make them do a transmedia report on like a web series with those elements and like thinking about Mm -hmm. how they interact. I require them to create one for their own at the end of the class. And a lot of students are very resistant to that. They're like, what is the point of this? Like, I don't understand you know, it seems just like a waste of time. And for some projects, that's true. Not every project needs transmedia or interactive elements. But for you, how do you sort of justify is the wrong word, but like, you know, when a student's being defensive, how do you justify the sort of like intense amount of work that goes into creating this like full world around a project? Mm -hmm. I mean, as a producer, I always break it down to the balance, the balance between Transmedia storytelling being very creatively fulfilling, but also this whole idea that financially it's, it can be lucrative and just at least, and and I always tell my students, look, you're going to do it here. Look, I'm making you do it. Sorry, (laughs) but you have to, or you fail this class, but the skills I teach you here after this, you can decide never to do transmedia storytelling again but at least you'll be able to vocalize to somebody what it is in case they ask you because out in the real world, when I'm pitching a lot of time, again, they don't usually say, do you have a transmedia world? But they do say like, Oh, what else is connected to this? Or they say, can we franchise this explaining to them the value in at least knowing that knowledge usually gets them on board. And also I'm like, look, 
try it if you don't like and then I mean a lot of you know they would be doing that anyway like considering like what kind of stories are they going to tell what kind this is just a new tool to put in their toolbox that they can use or not use not every story is built for transmedia even though you know I like to go do an exercise with my with my students where they bring me a, a something that is not transmedia and then we try to make it transmedia. Well, that's fine. I have never mm-hmm. been unsuccessful at doing it. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, what's an example of that? Oh my God, I knew you were going to put me on the spot. <laughs> like, what was one that they were like, what? Wow. Oh, um, well, and actually this was, I was like, I can't believe you're bringing this to me because he basically is. And I've actually started lecturing on this more, but somebody said, well, Gordon Ramsay, Hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, can a person be transmedia like Gordon Ramsay? And I was like, okay, well, let's break this down. What does Gordon Ramsay do? So he's got Hell's Kitchen. He's got MasterChef. He's got like, that's only TV. He also has his own TikTok account. And also there's the larger industry of the celebrity chef, which he falls into that. So to be absolutely Gordon Ramsay can be transmedia. And I argue that he is. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, something that I'm really looking into now is, especially with influencer-based content being so popular right now, are they transmedia? Because you see some of them that, like, they have their main audience on their channel, but then they, like, explore, like, some of them end up acting in things and Although I don't always recommend that, but yeah, well, that's a, whole, a that's a whole other conversation. I can have a whole class on like why it's not smart to just take an influencer and cast it in your project, mm-hmm. the pros and cons. But uh, I'm trying to think of another good one that's just like, well, Christina, think think pitch her uh, an idea. Like, uh-huh. let's what's oh a, boy, here we go. Let's let's, let's do exercise. it live. Fuck it, we'll do it live, which, guys. Which seems like so off. That's like no, they would never. They would never. Hmm. Yeah, Christina, do you have a do you have a media property? You probably have to dig back a bit because it seems yeah, like, it seems like nowadays they're all doing yeah, it. Yeah, everyone so. has like some something else happening. Uh Jenny, have you seen everything everywhere all at once? Oh yes. <laughs> I have not. Ah, that's too bad. You but should I'm see sorry, it. already. I mean, I know I know it's based on like different universes, right? Mm-hmm. Boom. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Any yeah. of those universes could be its own. And I mean, that's where Marvel's going with with the multiverse, because now they can be like, we can just make a Muxies. (laughs) Canon be damned. Anything is exactly exactly. I love that Uh, really quickly, just because you've worked in reality TV and I have an assumption of what you will say about this. But there used to be this argument that would be had in web series forums about whether or not YouTube vloggers that aren't in character, quote unquote, and who knows who's in character at any given time. But there was an argument about whether or not YouTube channels that had like a very specific point of view were considered indie reality TV. What's what's your opinion on the categorization? That's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually teach one of the things we have a class at NIFA in our short term producing department that is reality TV and alternate media and how you can mm-hmm. use reality based program. Because a lot of times when people think of transmedia, they think it. Oh, it's scripted stuff. Right. Big worlds, dragons fantasy and I was like no 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 you can do it for very simple stories you can do it for I've taught transmedia to both reality tv 
producers as well as uh, documentaries, <laughs> like real subject. How can you use the tools of transmedia to take a real story and build it out? And it's definitely possible. Now, for me, reality TV, the ones that are very successful to me, again, come down to casting. Like, I like to see the interactions of people and how that relates. And a lot of influencer-driven content isn't exploring that so much. It's usually a single person that's like, this is my story. And yes, you might have like their best friend or the people that kind of interact with them, but it's usually just about them. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the reality projects that jazz me are things like Survivor sure. and... Oh my gosh, RuPaul's Drag Race! Don't even get me started. I now more do a whole structured lecture than just on, yeah, and it, about like I just realized those are both competition shows. Ah, I was gonna ask if if some, you're that specifying. might be something for it for me too, but yeah, but it's it's about taking people from all different walks of life, or you know, and seeing how they interact with one another. Mm-hmm. Yes, I guess there's a competition element for me as well, because I'm just realizing my favorite reality shows are all competition based. Sure. So like Big Brother is another one I enjoy because it's just like shove them in this house and see what they do. So, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I often categorize reality TV as being like reality TV would be like a ensemble cast. Got it. Where influencer driven really feels like an individual, but that's not hard and fast rule sure that's yes. another thing i've i've realized in all of storytelling is you can learn all the rules till the cow comes home but you learn them so that you can break them <laughs> sure so you've worked in a lot of genres which i think is really fun and interesting and shows yeah. the sort of ability of the internet to do so many different things and so i'm curious your perspective on creating horror content and like more genre based content like what what have you learned on a craft level that really works for indie horror and digital and interactive horror definitely with digital horror less is more okay like i and it it, and part of it is in the delivery because some again if it's going to be youtube based i know it's different now because you can have 4k videos on youtube you can have but in general, you are kind of used to used to working in this uh, smaller space. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to watch it on a phone or a laptop or um, like one of my favorite horror projects, which was kind of really experimental at the time, was a Snapchat series called Sick House, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure if either of you, no. even this came on your radar, but it was a, a horror experience. I, I don't care. It's, it's, it's interesting because I didn't see it until it was cut together as a feature because the whole okay. point of it was they first ran it as like a Snapchat experience, mm-hmm. but they recorded the whole thing with in mind that it was going to be then cut together as a feature film. And it's okay. short. It's like an hour and 10 minutes. Is it shot vertically? It is vertical. Interesting. Which normally I despise vertical video so much, but in this one case, like there are enough other things that stick to the horror tropes that your brain kind of, as you're watching at first, it's really jarring because the beginning of it is just like, hi, we're, you know, cause it's the fun and games part of a horror film before they take you in. And it's mm-hmm. just like, it, it, by the way, they did use real, it was a combination of actors and actual Snapchat Snapchatters? I'm not really snappers. Yeah. I don't know what they call themselves. <laughs> no idea. 
but it centered around an actual Snapchat influencer named Andrea Russett. And the, the actual experience part of it happened on her Snapchat. Okay. Now it wasn't like Blair Witch or Lonely Girl because they did announce ahead of time that they were doing this. They were like, just so you guys know. And and she did videos where she's like, from this day to this day, we're going to be doing this thing, this experiment. Don't be alarmed. Don't call the cops. (laughs) I am okay. Like they, they kind of nipped that in the bud in the beginning. So basically, you know, she was like, my cousin is coming to town. It's unexpected. She just called me up and said she got some time off and she's going to come visit me. And so the beginning of it is like her picking this girl up at the airport and, you know, they find a kitten and they go to some Snapchat parties with Snapchatters. But then it starts to kind of lead to a group of them are going to go on a camping trip and try to find this place called Sick House. And what's interesting is as you're watching along, they're talking about like classic horror tropes, like the rules of finding it and like, don't do this or something bad will happen to you. So of course you're like, oh, they're going to do all those things. And <laughs> no, it like really like it is structured like a classic horror film, but then you're all watching it in this way where they're filming it. Mm-hmm. And it's unraveling as they're doing it live. And again, I only saw it as a fully edited together feature, but I can only imagine like when they were really running it because it was over three days and they were, it was all happening in real time. And you see parts of it where like something happens and then you realize, oh shoot, when people were watching it, that happened. And they had, I had to sit there and wait for the next piece to come out. Like we, if you watch it as a feature, it's all happening. Like it's all been edited together, but I'm just like, wow. Like the way they use the tension Mm-hmm. in that way to heighten what you would do in a horror film. And I just think that was like super innovative. Cool. It's weird to me now because the two main actors that they cast in it have now done other things. So when I see them, I'm like, oh, right. That wasn't a real Snapchat or that was one of the actors. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they did a good job of blending like, because Andrea Russett actually is a talented actress. She had an acting background. So it wasn't just like, Let's find someone with the biggest numbers and try to make them act. Mm-hmm. That they, they were very strategic about like who they picked. Sure. And then again, bolstering them with like actual actors. And I and because they did it in real time, I can't imagine what those actors went through. Because <laughs> for them, it was all happening. Sure. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. The way that Snapchat yeah. works. You can't. Can you upload to Snapchat? I haven't used Snapchat in. so long so because this particular feature film was done in partnership with snapchat yes there are ways to save the video sure but to regular old folks no you it uh, you can't upload it you can shoot it and then upload it at a certain time from what i understand that's not what they did here they wanted the experience to feel organic so they Hmm. were doing it in real time and i'm like fascinating Well, and then all the footage they used was the Snapchat footage. Sure. They did not add in other shots. Like it's all vertical video. It's all this. And again, at first you're like, because of course you're getting the content in like these 10 second bursts. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, it takes like literally your brain, it takes you a little while, but then you stop noticing it. 
Because I've shown this project to lots of students and we always talk about like, wow, like at first I was like not into it. And then suddenly it's like my brain just kind of like. Accepted put, it. Like it. Yeah. Yeah. It. yeah. It's fascinating. That is really interesting. So, yeah. So just to, to wrap up the specific like web series transmedia conversation, because yeah. I want to talk a little bit uh, about your experience doing like digital escape room design and, and other kind of things. But I'm curious, like high level, are there interactive transmedia like concepts that have really stuck with you over the years of like, that was just such a cool implementation. And alternatively, are there ones that like you've always thought would be really neat and either haven't had a chance to do yet, or you're hoping someone else will do in the future? Like, you know, get, get creative. What are, what are some interactive elements that you're like, absolutely brilliant? I know one (laughs) that I really enjoy, but it's really only possible in, in real world circumstances is Smell-based puzzles. Smell-based <laughs> I puzzles. I love, I'm a smell person. Like a lot of my memories are around, like I'll smell something. I'm like, oh, and I have this whole, it gives me this whole vision of, now obviously that's hard to do over digital. Sure. But I have seen some in-person interactive events that utilize smell in really fascinating ways like one of my earliest memories of it well I'm sure there's more but this is one that like really stuck with me I don't know if either of you ever did the ET ride at Universal no Mm -mm. so there's an ET I'm not sure they still have it but there was an ET ride at Universal I went when I was a kid because I grew up in San Diego so we weren't too far from LA so on Girl Scout trips we'd be like let's go to Hollywood (laughs) it was like a whole thing and E.T. opened up, the, there was this E.T. ride. And I remember as soon as you entered it, even in line, like the temperature was dropped out because you were in the woods and it was the whole thing where you're riding with, you get to ride on the bicycle with E.T. in the basket. <laughs> and so even just waiting in line, like it was all interior and the temperature dropped, there was sound effects. And then the smell of the woods, there's just something I can't forget that smell. I'm just like, oh, yes, we're in nature. And it was very subtle, but it was so well done. And then one of my favorite escape rooms is called The Alchemist in Los Angeles. And the storyline is you have, I think that was a 90 minute experience that you you had to break into this alchemist's lab because he discovered how to make the philosopher's stone. You know what the philosopher's stone is? So Mm -hmm. it grants eternal life. Mm -hmm. This guy's really bad. So we have to break in there, find it through this like booby trapped lab. And if we can find it, like everything is good. But if not, like he's going to take over the world because he's going to be a common mortal. Sure. So there was this amazing potion building puzzle that involved mixing together the right smells to make it was like it's basically like uh, what is that called? Like uh, aromatherapy. <laughs> but it was just, I loved it. I loved it. Cause again, smells to me, I feel like we could do so much more because you hear these old crazy stories of like smell-o-vision and, but I, I think there's like more innovative ways we could be utilizing all of our senses, make experience that utilizes all the senses, even the ones we don't think of as much. Sure. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And, and as you were talking about Lonely Girl and, and like her having an email account, I'm like, wow, that's such a like easy 
thing to do is like have an email account for someone in your stories and then just like yeah. assign someone to be the character. You know, like how fun would that be to be able to like email your favorite characters and just be like, hey, I wanted to say this or hey, have you noticed? Yeah. I can't tell you the number of email addresses that I own because of projects, either ones that like I actually did run or ones that I was developing. And I always grab the first thing when I'm doing world development. The first thing I think is, am I doing anything on a website? Am I doing anything with a YouTube account? Am I doing anything with a email and try to grab those right away? Yeah, no, it's smart. Yeah. So I have so many backlogs of. <laughs> Inboxes. Yeah, I have a lot of Twitter accounts, yeah. Twitter and Tumblr accounts. I have a lot. Oh, of. yeah. So many Twitter accounts. Yeah, We haven't even talked about social media as transmedia, but I feel like that's oh, such yeah. a like normie thing at this point, at even this though I love point, it. It's interesting how normal it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just but I always tell my students when you're going to do a social media based interaction, don't just automatically give every character every social media because yeah. that's not how we do social media. Mm hmm. You have to really look at the character and say, which ones would this character have? Like on the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, the fans were so frustrated because they couldn't find Darcy's social media accounts. And it's like, think about him, though. Like, <laughs> he's not really the type. Yeah. He's very private. So they were like, what is it? Because, you know, I, if you're familiar with Lizzie Bennet Diaries, we don't show Darcy until ex- episode 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was over halfway through. Prior to that, he's only referred to. He's only other people make impressions of him. Casting that role was so hard because we didn't cast the actor to play Darcy until closer to the date. So you could tell when the actors were coming in, which one of them's watched the show mm-hmm. because they would integrate the elements and that's ultimately how who got it got it because we were like, yep, he did his research. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Daniel Vincent Gord was fantastic. I, everyone perfect. was fantastic in that show. He was yeah. so perfect. I do remember as a fan of that show, the the I, I think there was like a big deal with like the day that Darcy followed Lizzie on Twitter. Like that was a really big like tentpole moment. And that's so small and simple. But also like think about the time that somebody follows you on social who like you have a, a big relationship with in the real world mm-hmm. and like what that means and how that changes the way that you post. That's such an interesting narrative opportunity. And it's cool to actually get to play that out. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, so let's <laughs> let's end this conversation on like a truly interactive level and uh, tell us about your experience in escape rooms and the, the one that you helped work on last year, a year before last. During the COVID time. Yeah. So, sometime time in not be. <laughs> exactly. The amorphous <laughs> COVID period. You worked on a cool thing. Tell me about that yeah. process. So I was doing some work for, I mean, they, they, they still exist, but I pulled back a little because, you know, chairing a department at a school is very different than, sure. <laughs> but um, it, it, the company is called Dark Arcade Theater. And the project we were working on was, is it, called Savage Hall. And it is an audio-based digital kind of, it's not an escape room per se, but it is a... I, I liken it to, and this might be before your guys' time, but I remember these because my parents used to play them, but we, they used to be able to get these how to host a murder mm-hmm. boxes. Oh, yeah. And you would assign the characters and then everyone would come dressed up and then they'd play the whole thing out. So it was kind of taking that experience, but putting it in this digital age 
And then also utilizing the ability to have different audio tracks for each person. So like in a, how the host a mystery, you get your envelope of like your information, but this, in this way, actually every character, they would go into these sections where audio would be played and each character is getting its own audio feed. So you're all in headphones. Mm. So while it's unraveling the story, you're finding out about your character because your audio is slightly different from everybody else's. Hmm. And so it was broken into acts. It was like five acts. And so you'd have a recording and then you'd get to like basically live uh, role play together. And again, each person has to decide how much am I going to reveal? How much am I not going to reveal? You know, and it, it, is trying to figure out who who done it. It's a classic kind of who done it set in World War II World War II during the Blitz in England. So there is that element of a ticking time clock because literally the bombs are going off like you can hear them in the background. They're getting closer and closer. So I guess I'm really drawn to like how can we use the different senses because this one really relies on audio. And it's really fun. Like you sign up with a group of your friends and the, some, there is, there is a little bit of a moderator aspect to it in the fact that there is a storyline around like, why are you playing these people? And someone is there to kind of help out. So it, it kind of merges again, like those how to host a mystery boxes with classic RPG. Cause there is a bit of role-playing involved. And so, yeah. Really, really fun, really different. And then now they're, the company is developing other, utilizing this special audio technique, which interestingly enough, they're actually trying to patent the actual system, hmm. which is very unique. And again, in terms of, from a producing angle, very smart because then they can license, license out this technology to other people who want to build games in this way. So again, the, that great merging of business and storytelling that yeah. I find really fascinating. Yeah, my my commerce example that I always use for when I'm talking to students about it is like, say your character in your web series has like an Etsy store or something. Yep. Create the Etsy store. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's not 100%. only merch, but it's in character merch. And now you have a character who is the vendor and they like can spend money to, to interact with them, which is always great. Exactly. exactly. And I know affiliate marketing is a big thing. I know like Emma Approved, I think, had a big integration with like Pinterest and like fashion was a big part of that character. Mm -hmm. And they did a lot of like affiliate marketing links. Um, yeah. We actually started that on a smaller scale in Lizzie Bennett Diaries with the character with Jane. Jane. I was going to say, is it Jane? Jane. Yes. Yeah. And it, because it, it went really well for us in that project, I worked on the beginning of Emma and then I actually did casting on all the Pemberley digital projects because that's a whole nother side of me. I love the casting process. I think that's why I'm really drawn to being like, the casting is so important. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, we had experimented it with it with Jane's character because it made sense because sure. she's a fashion designer and was really successful with it. So continued to kind of build that out more in Emma. Totally. So I had a, a, a big picture question at the very end of this okay. conversation, because I know that there are still going to be skeptics and there are probably a lot of pearl <laughs> clutchers like in the writing community who are like, I don't want to give up any level of like, 
control to an audience like that's so scary to me Mm. to you know have to farm out some of my narrative what if the audience doesn't respond in the way that I want like how can I tell a satisfying story if I don't ultimately have the like full narrative control so like how would you talk about evangelize for interactive media for for folks who are afraid to give up that control I think sometimes when you introduce the first introduce the concept of transmedia, especially if you're using the languaging of fan interaction or saying like interactive. I think a lot of people get it confused with choose your own adventure, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And yeah, I can actually see how some people would be like, oh my God, they're picking what's going on. No, no, no. In fact, transmedia is great for control freaks because that's (laughs) The biggest part of it is deciding you as the creator control how deep the interaction goes. I I love choose your own adventure in the fact that like it's branching narrative, Mm -hmm. but even that, if you've ever dug into choose your own adventure, it's still, it's not that the audience is making the story up. You give them all the options and you're just giving them more choice. It's Mm -hmm. really about choice, not control. And in fact, I have played with interactive forms that do allow you, the audience, full choice. Like uh, I mentioned Survivor being one of my favorite shows, but I was developing a project with, his name is Malcolm Freeberg. He's appeared on several seasons of Survivor. He's kind of a fan favorite. After, After he did a couple seasons of Survivor, he did this experimental project where it was him traveling across the United States in this like, like Winnebago that he bought. And he was bringing like a cameraman, an editor and like minimal crew. And the whole thing was like, you tell me where to go and what to do. And it was interesting because the only reason I actually ended up interacting with him is because he kickstarted that project. And one of the Kickstarter perks was you would get to have a phone conversation with him while he was on the road. And I donated at that level. So I had been watching like what was going on and and he ended up calling me for my perk and we got to talking and he was like, I so wish I hadn't done it this way because that gave them all the control. And so it made it, especially for a travel show, because he would pick two places and let them choose where they were going. And he was telling me this example of like, They had posted the poll in the morning and overwhelmingly like one option was getting chosen. And so he's like, great, we're going there. They actually started to go to that location in preparation. And then they switched. Went to sleep. When they woke up in the morning, a, a group had come in and rallied and switched the vote to the other location oh, no. so they suddenly were like oh my god we didn't take this into consideration we had, now we have to totally scrap everything and go there instead and i was like yeah that's because you, you have to there's a difference between again letting the audience control the narrative and giving them choice that's really interesting. That reminds me of Dan 3.0. Do you remember Dan 3.0? Oh, yes. Of course <laughs> I do. Of course, I was at the VidCon where he announced it because that was the very yes. first VidCon. Yeah, it was. Dan 3.0, for those who were not around in 2010 uh, at the first VidCon, Dan Brown was a video blogger known for a lot of things at the time. Yeah. One of his biggest series was solving a Rubik's Cube, like teaching you how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And he was also a big like Pogo person. Like yeah, Pogo. he liked to... What is he broke a record for a pogo stick, pogo like bouncing stick. on a pogo stick. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyways, he was a vlogger. He was a big time YouTuber. And he started this project about like his new phase of being an internet creator, where he would like give the audience like his audience control over every decision he made. And he would vlog about it. And I don't remember how many rules he had or how extensive it was. It did not last long. But it was things no, like he would ask them like what he should wear in the morning. What should he have for breakfast? Things like that. And it sounds like his the collapse of that experiment is similar to the one you're talking about, which was there was too much control given to the audience and not yes. enough, like, use, you know, creator-directed parameters. Right. And with Dan 3.0, it was literally like... It's also exhausting. Yeah, it was... You just said it. Exhausting. You mm-hmm. can't... You, audiences, no matter what level of interaction you give them, you are still entertaining them. Right. If you give them too much work to do... The entertainment starts to feel like work and then they don't want to do it anymore. I mean, that's that's a great like piece of advice just in general. And I, I try to, you know, hammer this home for like marketing advice that's separate from narration, which is n- narrative, mm-hmm. which is that like if you make it too hard for people to access your content on a distribution level, on a marketing level, like if it takes me more than two clicks to get to your content after you've told me about it, I'm not going to keep clicking. Like right. <laughs> even if it's just a series of like clicking buttons, I'm like two clicks, I'm done. I'm either at the content or I'm moving on. And I'm a highly engaged person who loves clicking things. So like, imagine the layperson. I just think, I I think that something that a lot of people forget about transmedia is that you can learn a lot from transmedia that can apply directly to more traditional marketing. It's like, if you make your engagement with your audience fun and creative and in the world, even if it's not traditionally transmedia, that's probably going to be really engaging to people. And if you learn how to do it on that level then your entire process gets a lot more fun and creative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people at the end of the day, like as the creator, your, your enjoyment is actually tantamount to anybody else's because mm-hmm. your emotions that you put into it, the audience will feel that. And if you're doing this kind of storytelling and as you're doing it, it's like you're putting in those like, it sounds woo woo, but it really isn't. It's like, if you're not enjoying it, how can you expect anyone else to? So don't take on too much. Don't burn out. That's like the biggest thing as a creator. Don't overdo it. Don't force it when it's not always necessary. Yeah. So I like it. I nerd about it. I like things that have a lot of it, but not every creator has to do that. Yeah, I think that's important. Sometimes less is more, as you gave as a piece of advice for horror creators. I I have so so enjoyed this because I really I didn't did. get on YouTube until like 2010. So I kind of yeah. missed those early years of such creativity and, and audience engagement. So yeah, thank you for this kind of walk through everything no worries (laughs) yeah it's crazy how much of modern media not just modern youtube comes from like web series origins and scripted experiments absolutely and there's still and i always tell people there's more to come like entertainment is continuing to evolve and those creators who can evolve with it will be the most successful i mean we're always going to have creators who is like i shoot on film the (laughs) old-fashioned way that's great but you know there's a lot of opportunity to be had if you can be flexible and open and it can be a lot of fun too 
Yeah, I love that. Also, there's a ton of like traditional media that do transmedia. Westworld Absolutely. had a website for the Westworld like camp mm. that you could book at your own vacation to Westworld. Oh, yes. Uh, and it Correct. started glitching after you were on the website for a certain amount of time because it was during the season where like the robots were breaking out. Um, yep. Ted Lasso has transmedia accounts like there are Keely Jones. Mm-hmm. There's a Keely Jones Twitter account. There's a Ted Lasso Twitter account. And they are yep. in character talking to people like this is not a niche, weird, like side hustle thing. Like, this is very much an integrated piece of the way that we interact with media. Yep. And all those need producers and people to create them. So job opportunities. <laughs> Absolutely. So so speaking of people who produce cool things, uh, what's next for you? Where should people keep an eye on what you're working on? So again, as I mentioned, uh, I'm pretty easy to find on social media. I'm at Jenny Powell pretty much everywhere. The one trick to it is it's J-E-N-N-I. P-O-W-E-L-L. So I'm a big, I, I, I've got, I mean, I have all the social medias. The ones I tend to, to stick to are Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I, I'm still old school. I like Facebook. And then again, since I'm predominantly teaching right now, I don't have cur- really current things that I'm working on. I'm hopefully getting to the point where I can start taking on some projects again, because I never want to stop creating, but the latest things I work on worked on again were Dark Arcade Theater, which you can Google them. They're dark, I think it's darkarcadetheater.com. And also during the pandemic, I also worked on a podcast network called Fictions, which they have their own app, or you can get any of their podcasts on any of the other podcast dis- distributors. But they focus on female-driven stories. And they are taking female-driven stories from short stories, novels, and then adapting them and then trying to grow them into larger properties. So then moving them to like television and things sure. of those nature. So that's a that's a cool one to look at. They're really growing right now. Amazing. Well, definitely check that out. And thank you so much for joining us today, for nerding out with us. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I could probably be here with you all day, but. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's there's questions that I had and I just like scrapped. I was like, we don't have time for this. (laughs) But someday maybe we'll we'll do a 2.0. We'll do a Jenny Mm 2.0. Sounds fun. Anytime. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them and our guest are in our episode description. And thank you to our Booby VIPs, who are our $10 supporters on Patreon. That's Kim Garland, Amanda Blunt, Anthony Epp, Kelsey Rauber, Norman Steinberg, and Brandy Nicole Payne. If you want your name on that list and or you want to have access to all of our bonus resources related to each and every podcast episode we post for free, you can subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. Or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month. Next episode, we'll be discussing production design, puppeteering, and practical effects with special guest Raymond Carr. Be sure to tune in.